Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I've been doping. (laughs) Wait a second. So... Where's your B test? Where's your wait? We got to get your B test. So I'm I'm confessing. No, as I I mentioned about a couple months ago, I had to have surgery on my foot. wasn't healing properly. They had to put a steroid shot in the lower joint of my big toe. Here is why I am sharing this, because when first of all, it hurt. It hurt like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. I swore at the doctor. Yes. Wow. It was rough. So when athletes talk about oh, I got a pain injection and now I'm fine. I don't know how they stand up after those pain injections because this, so it was a steroid to reduce the swelling mixed with lidocaine, which is the big painkiller that they shoot into them. They deserve a gold medal for taking one of those shots. I will never do it again. I will cut my foot off before I let them give me another one of those shots again. So everything about this foot, procedure has taught me I am not designed to be an Olympic athlete. Do you feel any like increased performance benefits from your from your steroid? You know, usage? I have been speaking in a deeper voice. And I think I could, you know, kick a winner for the women's soccer team in my, oh, that my would be juiced cool. up foot. That would be cool. Well, you know, we were talking before the show that everything's been coming up Bradbury all week for us. Every time I turn around, I have another Stephen Bradbury reference popping up either in my Twitter feed or on YouTube or whatever. It's just been nonstop Stephen Bradbury after. And I I blame Ben and Colin from Off the Podium for putting that into our lives. But also I was just doing a little bit of a news scan and saw that the chef de mission for the Netherlands at Paris 2024 will be Peter Vanden Hogenbond. So now everything is going to come up Peter Vanden Hogenbond. For a so, while too. We talked with Ben about his costume and now he can resurrect it, bring it to Holland House for Paris 2024 <gasps> and maybe get Peter Vandenhoek yes. to sign his goggles. That would be amazing. <laughs> get on that, Ben. Don't forget our book club is coming up. We are reading Inaugural Ballers by Andrew Marinus. If you are reading the book, let us know what you think of it. We are also having a Q&A with Andrew on Monday, March 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central Time in the U.S. It is free, but we do ask that you sign up in order to send you the link for the event to RSVP. Please email flamealivepod at gmail.com and put book club in the subject line. Live and in person. And we're talking women's basketball. What could be better? Not getting a shot in your foot. That's true. Also, what could be better is our conversation we're having today 
We are talking with Alexis Schaefer, who is the former commercial and marketing director of the International Paralympic Committee. Alexis joined the IPC in 2002 as senior manager of marketing and broadcasting when there weren't many employees at the IPC. So you can imagine that his role encompassed a whole lot of different things. He was promoted to the role of commercial and marketing director in 2011 and remained there until he left the organization in 2022. Among his many projects, Alexis created the IPC Worldwide Partnership Program, which was so effective that it was integrated into the International Olympic Committee's top program. He also worked to build broadcasting partnerships, which has helped to expand the coverage of the Paralympics. We talk with him about the development of sponsorship and broadcasting, including why we have feed beefs. Take a listen. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us. First question, you worked at the IPC for about 20 years, and it was your first job out of university. What made you want to work with the International Paralympic Committee? Well, first of all, hello and thanks for having me. Well, I think the answer is uh, not as exciting as maybe you are hoping for. I left university. I was starting to look for jobs. I was involved with sports before, so I still do shooting sports. I was part of the German national team. I competed at some level internationally and as a junior discovered that shooting sports, you peak very old in your life in a way. So it's not one of the sports where you can do university right after it. So I decided to go with university, was looking for a job in sports. Didn't know at all that the IPC is based in Bonn. Bonn is my hometown, is where I went to school. I left the city for then studying. So came back, saw a post for a position for the assistant to the president. And I thought like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't even know that the International Paralympic Committee is based in Bonn. So maybe I call them up and ask them if I could do an internship while I'm applying for jobs and could be an interesting opportunity to learn and and on the other hand, I do something meaningful. And well, that ended up in, in a 20 years career at the IPC. So where did you start? The IPC had to be a completely different world at that time. What was it like when you joined as an organization? Yeah, so the office opened in 99. I joined late in 2002. That was the time when the then CEO, Chavi Gonzalez, he was then just there for a couple of months. There were probably two handful of people. if. If there were, I started basically then as a person that assisted the marketing director at the time. So I always had worked in marketing with the IPC from start to the end. But of course, when you look at the organization, when you look at the office in 2002 with two handful of people, and when I left, I think there were about 130 people working for the IPC. It was a completely different type of organization. And I think that was also the exciting part about working there because every summer games, I looked back at the end of the games and was kind of like thinking, so what did you do the previous cycle? You know, I was thinking, well, what's coming up, what's coming up next in the next cycle? And, and there were so dramatic developments as you were going from games to games to games. And uh, yeah, I think I, w I wasn't thinking about leaving because my job, my role changed so much. I took over the responsibility then for the commercial area in 2008 at the time and was then also able to build a team around it, both in the, in, in the partnership area at the time I was still leading brand and also, of course, in the broadcast areas, we took over the broadcasting rights internally after, after London 
And yeah, it's uh, when you look back at it now and when you look at how many people react when you say, oh, I work for the International Paralympic Committee and then people say, oh, really? And they recognize the organization, they recognize the event. And I still remember in 2003, I was with my girlfriend at the time at a wedding in Antwerp and was a, a friend of hers that uh, she met while she was studying in Canada and, and the father was a very successful businessman. So we get into conversations with different people and I remember someone asking me, so what are you doing? So I said, okay, I work for the International Paralympic Committee. And then he looked at me and said, like, okay, can you explain what they're doing? So told about the Paralympic Games and what the Paralympic Games are. And then he looked at me and said, like, okay, and what are you doing for a living? It's like, well, that's actually my job. And yeah, I think uh, maybe now we're laughing, but at the time it was still the reality. And it's great that me and others were able to play their part to make the, the Paralympic Games, the, the movement, um, something bigger and meaningful and give the athletes the platform that they deserve. And when I left the organization, I also said, I really hope I don't want to look back and talk about all the great things that I accomplished. I really hope that this is just the beginning and that the organization, the movement is going to continue to grow, evolve and become even more meaningful in the world of sport. When we were in Beijing, I definitely got the impression from the IPC leadership that it is a very small community at the top and it is very flat. Was that your experience on the inside? I think the organization, the access to the top was always very, let's say, short. And I think if you are a small organization, you also need, you need to have that. You cannot go through 10 levels in the chain of command. That's, it's not going to work. Obviously the pyramid is bigger now than it used to be at the beginning. But I think one of the strong parts or what was really always very strong with the organization was the team and the support that the team was giving to each other and also the opportunity to develop ideas. And, and then you obviously need a leadership that needs to be open to those ideas to also drive the change. And I think access to that leadership was also something very important. So, um, yeah, with Sukhant that. Your first games would have been Athens 2004. Those games were much different than the games you see today. When you come in and you try to build up awareness and build up excitement about the Paralympics at a much different time of their visibility, like, what were the goals? Well, when I came in, the goals or the goal was to build a sponsorship pillar for the organization. So to bring in more revenue, to grow the IPC, grow the, help to grow the movement. So, um, if I would concentrate on that, because I think if you look at Athens and try to compare Athens with Tokyo, there are so many different points that are different today than at the time. So let's focus on that for, for a second. Today, people look at Tokyo 2020 and they see that all the IOC top partners are involved, maybe not all for Tokyo 2020, not all at a world by partner level, but at least on a domestic level. Now moving forward, the IOC is responsible for bundling up the top program and, and, and you're buying global rights to both the Olympics and the Paralympics at the same time. That was unthinkable at the time. And, and there was hardly, when you look at the sponsorship family list, hardly any of the top partners that supported Athens. Same for the domestic partners, by the way. So it was a massive difference and therefore we had to build from scratch. I always say that one of the exciting pieces was that 
and anytime that you you started a new project, it was more more or less a white paper that you started with. Maybe someone was were giving you kind of like a couple of guiding documents, but you can trust that that document doesn't exist. And that's that's how it was like going into essence. We launched the Agitos in in Athens, so uh, that was a big moment. So you, some people may still remember the the Tegoi symbol that looked like the drops out of the Yin Yang symbol that were developed out of the Seoul Games. Then at the time we're still five. That was a bigger organization in Lausanne that necessarily didn't like the arrangement of the five drops and the colors and the fact that there were ambitions in the 90s from the IPC to commercialize this. Obviously, can understand that position if you try to protect, on the other hand, your own symbol. So two of the five drops were dropped. And for a long time, that was the symbol of the Paralympic movement. I think there were a lot of people that always said it wasn't our decision to use that symbol. So we wanted to changed that and and out of a strategic process that was led by the president at the time, Sir Philip Crazen, and the board, one decision was also to create a new brand. So he was going into then the closing ceremony when that brand was launched. It was still already visible in, on some of the television footage, but as it was launched shortly before the games, the organizing committee, for example, wasn't willing anymore to change the logo. So um, everything was changed, what was still able to change. Different for Torino because they launched with the Tegor symbol and then transferred over to the Agitas for 2006. So that was an exciting time. Also convincing National Paralympic Committees at the time to, to say, we want to create a global brand. So let's uh, have all the MPCs have the, the Agitas incorporated in their national design. Hardly any of the MPCs had that at the time. A lot of the MPCs didn't carry the name Paralympic or the word Paralympic in their title. It was still the organization for the deaf or the blind or whatever. So Philip Creighton always had a very unique or a very specific opinion about the word disabled. So uh, the fact that we had a lot of membership organizations that carried the word disabled in their title was obviously something that needed to be addressed. So it was something where you could certainly look to the left and to the right and speak to a lot of people and learn from them and learn how they've done this. But it felt like there's so much, so much to do. And sometimes you didn't really know where to start, where to stop and whether you find it funny and good that, that Olympic partners that made a conscious decision not to be involved in, in the Paralympic Games still had visibility there because the organizing committee said, well, it's too expensive to change it. Whether the left was then good, bad, I don't know, but Visa started already to get involved. Otto Bock, obviously, as a national partner, domestic partner of the organizing committee, they did this since 88. They were also in Athens and Athens wasn't very important games for us to also then talk to the owner of, of Otto Bock and, and subsequently making Otto, Otto Bock also work like partner for the IPC. So yeah, a lot of things kicked off there, changed. But when you're looking back at the games in Athens and how they look like, and if you then go to Tokyo and you experience the games there, unfortunately without spectators, but in terms of level of service, for example, it's, it's been a great experience, great rise, not always without bumps, but certainly something that you look back and um, yeah, feel a little bit proud about what the team has achieved together. What was it like to work with the national committees and convince them, hey, we all need to be National Paralympic Committee and change their Because that ends up being a cost on their end, too. Yep. It was hard. 
I mean, it took a number of general assemblies before the IP bylaws that were written now in the, in the way they're written today in terms of having the okay that Paralympic is part of the title and having one third of the design being the Agitos because there were a number of nations that had existing designs, existing logos, something that they had invested in. And then all of a sudden the mothership comes and say, okay, right, you know, now we believe in the big rebranding. So, um, come on, let's do this together. So I would say there was a lot of persistency. Sometimes you had to wait for leadership to change, to grab the opportunity. Sometimes it was done by political, let's say pressure. And there were also a lot of countries that actually saw the benefit. I think a big, big change came actually with Beijing and the television coverage in Beijing and all of a sudden people recognizing and, and seeing what a summer games can bring. Because uh, from a television perspective, Athens was a big jump from Sydney. It was only the second time that there was a, what you call a host broadcasting. So where there was a host broadcasting organization creating a world feed that you could then sell to televisions to broadcast the games live. There was in certain territories already an okay coverage, but in many territories there were, were not. And I think in Beijing, there was a dramatic step forward. And I think also national Paralympic committees recognized that. And that's when we started to have our list and we basically said, well, we cannot do and work with everybody at the same time. We also gave support to many national Paralympic committees at the time because they didn't have designers to work on it. So we had internally capabilities to work with smaller NPCs to understand, get their brief, understand what they think their emblem should be looking like and then work with them. And we always said like, okay, we have the ones that are really willing. So let's work with them one by one. Some of them can do it themselves. Others, we need to help. Then there was constantly kind of like the middle group where you were talking to them whenever you had the opportunity. And there was also a group of people where you said, okay, we're, we're not going to convince them tomorrow. So let's wait for a significant moment. Let's call it, for example, London 2012. And the fact that you want the host NPC to carry the Paralympic symbol, or you wait for the leadership to change or for change of mind to get to this point. What is the relationship between the IPC and the Olympic Broadcasting Service in terms of getting that feed? Ooh, I think, I mean, first of all, to start off with, because I think just Manolo Romero died as a, as a father of host broadcasting and OBS and Xavi Gonzalez and I were just going through a little bit the history and the impact that Manolo made and OBS only started to exist later. So you already have to go a little bit earlier and it was always a contractual relationship. So, but it's a purpose, the, the organization has a purpose. So, um, the IOC also had to agree that OBS gets involved with the Paralympic Games and that was part of the first cooperation agreement between the IPC and the IOC that OBS would do that, which has many advantages and both Manolo Romeo and, and now also Janek Sefakos this year, there have been enormous support for the Paralympics. Why well, I'm saying this because people cannot imagine the credibility that comes with OBS producing a television feed. Of course, you debate how can things be done differently or, you know, does it have to be like this? And maybe you have to make compromises because there's an infrastructure that is being put in place for the Olympics that you also then use for the Paralympics. But in the end, you contract OBS. So it's either 
but Tokyo was a special case with the IPC, but normally it's the organizing committee. You agree on what's the level of production that OBS should produce. Obviously, OBS would make recommendations, but it's part of the work of the IPC and, and also the organizing committees, obviously, to make the call what that level should be. We have been very fortunate that we've been able to increase the level uh, games, um, games by games. And from what I understand, Paris is going to be, again, unprecedented levels of coverage with all the sports that are covered. But someone needs to pay for that. And it's either the organizing committee saying, no matter what, I pay what I have to pay. And that was, for example, the case in Beijing. So Beijing significantly upgraded the level of coverage from Athens to Beijing. But then as we were going to London, London said, okay, we're going to do the same as Beijing, but first we need to recoup the costs here. We need to see how much we can make from national and international ride sales. And once that is done, then we can talk about enhancements. And that's the reason why from Beijing to London, the distribution increased significantly, but the level of coverage didn't. London, in the end, could have taken the decision to invest more into, into the coverage. There was huge debate at the time, for example, about the, the marathon. It was a beautiful day, sunny. And Britain obviously was hoping for some gold medals and there was no live coverage at the time. And OBS got a lot of criticism for that, but I mean, it wasn't their call. I mean, OBS basically is, is producing then what they're contracted to produce. And I can say that in that particular case, for example, Manolo had raised this point a number of times and said that he thinks it's a mistake that no investment, additional investment was planned for the marathon. So yeah, easy question, maybe short one, long answer to it, but I think it's, um, and I've been at the center of it for, for a long time. It's always been a very, in the end, very productive. I think, uh, not without challenges, especially if you're kind of like this small organization that wants to develop very, very quickly. And obviously OBS also has to consider the big picture, but they've been doing so many things and that were then possible during the Paralympics that probably without having the, uh, let's say Olympic infrastructure in place wouldn't have been possible. So in that sense, fantastic support. And as I said, great, great credibility among the broadcast community, because if someone asks the question, so who's actually producing the pictures? Can I rely on this? Is it good? And you say, well, it's produced by Olympic Broadcasting Services. And people say, oh, oh, okay. So next question. let's make a long answer longer. We had a lot of feed beefs. No, no, <laughs> we had a lot of feed beefs, what we called feed beefs from Tokyo. So you mentioned that Tokyo was not the organizing committee organize or do the contract for those feeds. Where is the choice of what sports we are going to cover, aren't going to cover made? Because we, we really sadly missed not having wheelchair fencing and para power lifting at Tokyo. Yeah, the broadcasters. And I mean, for Tokyo, I can really speak about this because with my colleague Josh at the time, who was working for me and now working for International skating union and helping the president there, but he was leading this together with Alex Vapail and we came out of Rio and said, okay, we have a unique opportunity. So the first thing that happened together with our boardman member, Mr. Yamaraki, we had to convince NHK to become 
to have a long-term deal in place for, for the Paralympic Games, so eight games in a row that gave us a lot of stability. They made a significant contribution to the co production where we know, okay, that helps us basically uh, with the con contribution that we have that helps us to cover the same level of coverage than we had in Rio. And then as we sold the rights, we obviously know how much mo money additionally we're probably going to, going to have. We started to make calculations into where eventually would the revenue go. And we made an approach to the organizing committee and told the organizing committee that we, because they had the rights, they had the obligation to produce and the right to receive the revenue. In order to get one of the two, you needed to take both. So we made an offer to the organizing committee, a financial offer and let's say a resource offer that we as the IPC would take care of it. We got a mandate from the governing board at the time to say, we want to increase the coverage. We uh, believe that if we improve the coverage, it's going to help with the overall global distribution, but it needs to pay for itself. So at the time we made the decision that we're very closely again with OBS to say, okay, each sport, how much does this cost? And then on the other hand, we had a number of meetings and we did a number of service with broadcasters to say, okay, you're right. If we do this and we start completely from scratch, which sports are most important to you? Do you want to have full life coverage? Do you want to have a reduced bare minimum approach for the sport? Do you maybe want to have not live coverage, but in a way with a smaller set of produced life, but only available as highlights? Do you want to have more services? Do you want to have this? Do you want to have that? So we did the first survey. We got the feedback from the broadcasters, then looked at all the sports, all the different services, and said like, okay, right. What is really the core that everyone wants? And how much money do we actually have? So where do we have to make a cut? So that's when you trace back, there was an initial press release about the level of coverage that we announced together with the Tokyo Organizing Committee. So that was kind of like survey one after the decision. And where we obviously have to go to a number of spots, we say, okay, right. The broadcasters actually wanted an additional feed in athletics that was more important to them, far more important to them than unfortunately a sport that I'm not going to mention now. So we try to be as objective as possible to make this not a political exercise, but try to focus actually on what the broadcasters told us, what they, what they want, what they need to have overall more coverage of the games. And we reached out, I think we spoke, when you look at the coverage for Rio, we always said we, we probably, the people that we involved represented around 90% of the revenue and 90% of the overall coverage of the games. So we had the feeling that the group that we were talking to, they're really going to make an impact. And if that group is already saying that, that, that that's important, then probably there are others that would be very happy with the decisions that we were making. And if you say, why do you need three feeds from athletics? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think during the Olympics, athletics has probably, I don't know, 10, 15 isolated feet where you have a specific camera feed. But in the past, it was, you had two. That means you had a feed that focused on track. And then you had a feed that was mixing track and field with the result that it was very, very hard to actually cover the narrative of a field event. So you would always, because the mixed feed would always go back to the track if something happens to the track, because for a lot of broadcasters, they use the 
the mixed feet because they cover then more of the action. And the third field allowed us for the first time to have a way better narrative of all the different field events. And when you then look at athletics, probably representing, I don't know, eight or 900 athletes out of 4,500 or so in Tokyo, then yes, it is very unfortunate if you then the sport that doesn't have the coverage, but unfortunately we were not in a position where we could say money is not an issue, but we needed to take this step by step by step. And I think we try to be as responsible as possible, but trying to be, to trying to find as many objective criteria that we could to make that call and make that decision. Was I the most beloved person going into those meetings with the different sports, having to tell them that they don't have that coverage? Well, I had better meetings in my life, but on the other hand, I can also say that some really understood when we showed them the numbers and the results that they also have to do some, some work. And that also starts with doing some work between the games, because in the end, if you have a sport and it's really important to you and your community, and it's important to many different countries, then you building an audience. And if there is a demand, then the broadcaster would be more open to also take it. But also to be fair, when you're looking at the resources, international federations naturally have on the Olympic side to also look after press media, their own events. And if you compare this to the Paralympic games, then obviously it's again, one step at a time, something that needs to develop. I think what people it's frustrating in the moment and it frustrated sometimes the hell out of me, but I think you have to look back maybe sometimes five, 10, 15, 20 years and, and try to look then at the, the bigger picture and to see whether you're making advancements or not. And, uh, in the end, whether what we did was the right decision or the wrong decision, I leave this to, for others to, to judge, but we did the best that we could to not make this a political game where one sport, because they had a closer connection to whoever, whoever had a better chance to receive better coverage than another sport. And inside of the IPC, obviously there are still a number of, of sports. And uh, again, here, if someone would say, yeah, but you didn't do this with an IPC sport. No, I mean, powerlifting, for example, was an IPC governed sport and had coverage in Rio and didn't have live coverage then in Tokyo. And it's something that wasn't easy also to explain to our colleagues, but, um, yeah, we tried not to, to have policies interfering with it because that's always then the end of it, it all when you try to explain it. When you negotiate with a broadcaster for multiple games, which I understand when I was doing some research, I noticed that somewhere along the way you switched from negotiating single games to negotiating multiple games. And I totally get how that makes your life so much easier to not have to do that every few years. But when you talk about like expanding coverage of the Paralympics or even the Paralympic expanding and adding more sports or a sport adding more classifications or events to it, how does that affect the money aspect of it when you negotiate for a certain amount and then all of a sudden maybe costs go up or inflation hits or sports expand. And where do you get that money? Yeah. I mean, first, first of all, what really drives the price is commitment and very important competition. I mean, the more that there is a feeling of competition, that's really when you really, really get a market price. In that sense, 
in a lot of territories, we were more facing the situation to say, we need to build this partnership and need to build this partnership in the sense of getting more money and on the other hand, getting more hours, hours to broadcast. So if you, I don't know, if you are FIFA or also the IOC, then you would go to tender in many markets because there would naturally also be a lot of television stations that could compete against each other. And in many markets on the Paralympic Games, certainly in the past, that has changed in a number of markets. Now, there was a lot less, if no competition. You know, sometimes it wasn't a question about, can I create competition? It was more a question about how can I get a viable broadcaster? In that sense, if you're able to give, deliver a better product, you know, and can also make the argument, if you pay more, you get more, that can also help the price and that help us to achieve higher revenues at a number of times, even, even in the situation where there wasn't the strongest competition and the broadcaster knew that there is nowhere else to turn to. But the argument that you can still make that if we want to reinvest into the product and make promises, but then also live up to those promises was certainly something that's helped to create credibility and help to drive the revenue. Then currency fluctuations, really, really, really difficult. I mean, uh, even if it's just dollar against euro, that's already when you, when you're looking at the fluctuation there, we try to minimize as much as possible the number of currencies that we were working with to protect us there and to have also as, as much, let's say, uh, as much security as possible. Inflation, I cannot really comment because I was lucky enough when I was selling TV rights from 20, from 2012 <laughs> until 20. In 2021, we lived in a completely different world in terms of inflation. But I mean, jokes aside, it's such a severe situation. And I, I don't know if you had been able to find an expert in November, December 2021 that was able to predict where inflation is going to go six, seven, eight months later. And obviously that creates a lot of challenges. But I think our biggest challenge, for example, was, was also, I mean, we would have loved to do some more things in Tokyo, also on the digital front that in the end we were not able to do because COVID hit and, and all of a sudden we were in all those conference calls and talked about, okay, you know, what does it cost to provide masks to a couple of thousand employees of the host broadcaster? And how do we deal with the fact getting people out of the country after the Olympic Games or trying to bring them back into the Paralympic Games? Or do we try to convince them to stay into the country? If they stay in the country and it's our decision, who pays for that? And I think that was a massive challenge to deal with. And on the other hand, I think it was still a massive achievement then to the team with uh, a couple of last minute deals with a lot of creative ideas, with good collaboration also with OBS to make it happen that uh, in the end, the IPC was able to say that even a, a small profit was made on the broadcast side, because remember, I mean, the, the direction of the board at the time was expand the coverage, do as much as you can, but don't lose money. And, and I mean, I don't want to go into all the details here, but it was always the intent to really grow the coverage and as much as we can, because if you record a profit, it's a full profit business. If you're selling TV rights and then parts of it would have to, um, you, you would have to pay tax on it, even if the IPC is a non-for-profit in Germany. So there was always this ambition to really stay at the edge of it. And Corinne in the finance team together with her team did a brilliant job also guiding us through that, but that was 
probably a very difficult time. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship with Toyota, because Toyota definitely has really embraced its role as a sponsor of the Paralympics and gone whole hog into it. So how did that develop? You were on the, the starting end of that. Yeah. So again, a lot of credit also here to our board member, Yamawaki, um, who was a tremendous support on that end. Obviously, he's a well-connected Japanese businessman. He he knew what's going on in the in the conversations between the IOC and and Toyota, so we got a sense that that is going to happen, and we we also heard that there is a stronger interest there, driven also by Mister Toyota, for Toyota also to become a worldwide Paralympic partner. And um, the Olympic deal had to be done first, and what started then was a marathon of of discussion. So we internally had prepared a pitch deck for Toyota that was all around the idea of mobility for all, which then turned out to really hit the sentiment of Toyota very, very nicely. And the first part of the conversations was also about how is that going to work? Because in the parallel, there was no mechanism that you do one contract. You had to speak to all the different organizing committees. You had to involve the IOC because some organizing committees were not even appointed and the hosting contract obviously had to go through the IOC. We didn't know at the beginning how strongly Toyota is interested. So we went in with the idea for Toyota to become a global partner because, I mean, that that was already one of the challenges. There were national Paralympic committees that had existing automobile deals and with for example, the US with BMW, there was Germany with Audi, there was Great Britain with Nissan. And we had to think about, okay, how do we do this? Because the mechanism is you become a top partner, whether you have Olympic, at the time, you have Olympic rights or no Olympic rights, but at the top partner, you are protected, not only protected by the organizing committee, the IPC, but every single national Paralympic committee around the globe has to protect you. Even if you get no money, like all the NOCs getting money from the top deal, even then you have to grant top protection. That's simply part, part of the deal. It's been part of the deal since the first IPC-IOC agreement that was negotiated in, in 2000 and then formalized in 2003 with Michael Payne at, at the time still. And we had to think about how do we deal with that situation because we, we will have to work with those NPCs to try to see how can we replace basically their partners. and. And we went to Toyota and said, well, we don't believe it's good that if you go in, I mean, first of all, you, we went in and said, you have to replace those deals. Toyota wanted to sell this to us, how positive this is in terms of Toyota coming in as a brand, believing in the Paralympics. And we basically say, okay, right. But also you have to understand if you come in and you basically tell all those national Paralympic committees, they need to get rid of their automobile partners and don't get anything for it. That's not right. No matter what you're doing with the IPC or what you're doing with the games, that is not going to be good. So we recommend to you that you're going to partner with every single National Paralympic Committee. Instead of choosing a few, you go in with everybody. And there was then a lot of discussion how this could work. We came then at some point in time in the negotiations to the point where they said, yeah, we spoke with Mr. Toyota and he, really, he wants to go with this approach. So we want to have one contract. We want all the games included in the contract. We want every single National Paralympic Committee. And then we started also to discuss what this then could be worth. 
And again, what we then tried internally was to, to think about how, how we could do this for the top program. They went around somewhere in, sometimes in the eighties and started to say, okay, you get this, you get this, you get that. And then from there, somehow the, there's no magic formula, how those numbers then evolved. They evolved country by country, depending on the situation. We had to do this all at the same time. And again, we tried to be as objective as possible and trying to get as accurate information from the MPCs, whether they have a partner, not have a partner, if they have a partner, what rights, how much money. And we're trying to bake this then all into a structure, which we could then again, discuss and negotiate with Toyota. It was a very interesting time. Within a couple of months, I had senator status with Lufthansa based on not flying business, which, uh, yeah, tells you a little bit how often there was exchange, but usually um, either to your, we kind of like, it was fundamentally me together with our lawyer at the time, Mike Townley, that went to, uh, uh, to Tokyo. And then, uh, the other time the Toyota folks were coming to Bonn and I must say it was from the beginning, a great exchange. Also said, so listen to this kudos to the team from Denso. Yeah, I get a lot of critics, but, uh, Ryo Wakabayashi, that was one of the, the main people working on this and, and his team helped, helped also there a lot. And in the end we were able to, to get it all done. And that was a great achievement. And I think how exciting a contract negotiation can be when you are there at the beginning is one thing, but I think what Toyota did with it is the amazing part. And again, we were talking about media rights. So John Lisko is now involved with, uh, with the IPC for the broadcasting rights. Again, he was working for Sachi and was a part of the original team, always a massive supporter of the Paralympics, fantastic to work with. And this team between Denso and Sachi was really so strong. And it was the first top partner that said, okay, as a kickoff workshop, we want both the IPC and the IOC there. And we want to understand from them what you think success means. And, uh, I, th I think that developed into great relationship. It's a little bit unfortunate that, I mean, Toyota wanted to have to Tokyo obviously as their big games with COVID that all changed very unfortunate, but that's how life is sometimes. And so, um, I think we would have seen even, even more great things and, um, saying this on the back of Toyota, then to kick off the partnership, having the Lauren Wolfton Croft video as part of the Super Bowl, something that from a PR point of view, obviously was, was massive. And even if not the whole world sees, uh, all the Super Bowl ads, it obviously had a tremendous impact on also how the, the Paralympics are perceived in the United States. And in that regard, I also must say wouldn't under estimate the support that Toyota was giving to MPC, for example, because, uh, again, long, long discussions with Gary Zenkel about many, many, many different things. I think it's uh, overall positive how that relationship is developing. I hope it really going to see a fantastic climax in, in LA, but in the end, NBC is also, it's a for-profit company. So they need to refinance their operations with sponsorship dollars. And when you're then looking at what some of the partners were publicly saying, and on the other hand, behind closed doors, we're giving MPC to help having a, a greater coverage of the Paralympics. It's, it's two different things. And Toyota was the one, and again, John was in the, in the center of that and deserves also their credit 
it's a company that put the money where, where their mouth was and was leading the pack. And I think that created a lot of good things for the Paralympic movement, not only in, then in the States, but also in many other countries. And therefore, I think overall, when looking back at that relationship, it's fantastic to see how things have developed from this program, the support, especially that I was also giving to National Paralympic Committees, the development initiatives that uh, the IPC was able to support NPCs with the money that Toyota was giving them. A lot of people speak about impact sponsorships and purpose and so on. But uh, I think when you're looking at that relationship, then that's a really, really strong case and, and one where you, I don't know, don't have to write the strategy afterwards. It was there right from the beginning, the intent, the purpose, and it, it then just in a, in a great way went out and touched so many countries down to the athlete level. Well, it brought us the greatest mobility commercial ever, the Mike and Maya commercials from the Tokyo Olympics. So, you know, Toyota brought us such joy with their mobility device advertising. See? Yeah, but, 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 but um, sorry to interrupt you here, but it's so interesting. Um, the, uh, the other day I met a previous colleague and he's doing some work here for the local hockey team in Cologne, the Hayat, or the Sharks in English. And they're doing an audio streams for fans with visual impairment. And who's sponsoring that? It's Toyota. And why are they sponsoring that? They went to the club and said, inclusion, especially also disability inclusion is so important for us. What are you doing on this front? And that's when I'm saying, you know, there's intent, there's strategy, there's a real purpose behind it. And the way it was disseminated all across the world was so funny to, for me to see kind of, you, you can, I'm not saying that this is kind of like, you know, all because I negotiated the contract. It's definitely not. But it's so, I think when, you, when you're looking at the importance of that contract and that relationship, and you would start putting all those things together that were kicked off or started or were amplified or were continued or whatever. There's so much that goes back to that partnership. And therefore, yeah, it's, I think, incredibly important for the Paralympic movement that Toyota, uh, Toyota happened. And I hope that there also is going to be a longer relationship coming, but that is obviously future talk. One little follow-up. How long did it take to negotiate that deal? Because we often think on the fan side, we're like, oh, hey, Toyota's partner now. But this is such a complex deal and so overarching that, I mean, I'd like to appreciate the work that went into it. I must say, first of all, it was months, not days and weeks. I mean, you could probably easily do this by tracing down the press releases, but I think the final announcement must have been in November, end of November. And the negotiations started right after Toyota was announced as a top partner. So uh, gut feeling is it was probably around around a year it took to put all those uh, different pieces together, right? I still quite remember the end date, the, the starting when, when all of that started. I must say um, I would have to, to look that up myself. So you worked under two IPC presidents, Sir Philip Craven and Andrew Parsons. What's the difference? Because they're very different men. What was the difference in terms of the impact to the organization and how it functioned on a day-to-day -day level? Yes. I mean, yes, obviously, two men, two generations. Uh, Andrew, I think, let's say, 
grew up under under Philip, so I think he was vice president under Philip. So I think they had a lot of interactions. There were a lot of things where I think they had very close interaction with each other. Philip coming more from the sports side, Andrew more coming from the communication and marketing side uh, in, inside. But Philip growing up inside the sport, Andrew, when you look at his vida, um, has been also involved in the Paralympic movement in Brazil all his life. And then also, I think, as a president of the Americas region. So uh, he also dedicated his life for it. But obviously, when you're looking also from an age perspective and how you then approach things, how you work, it's completely different. You know, one is relying more on text messages and the other one is the writing letters. I think that diversity, the, the great thing about diversity is that there isn't a good or a bad, you know, it's not right or it's wrong. It's, uh, it's you're coming from different angles and you're putting a different focus on things. Uh, so, uh, I think both were actually letting you do your job. I think both had the ability to listen to what your arguments are and then agree to it. And then you could also do your thing and get it done. I think in that sense, both Xavi and Mike as CEOs, but also the other C-level positions had, had an opportunity more to really also do the management where the president is more on the governance level. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it was also for me interesting because I, I obviously knew Andrew also for a long time at, at different dealings with him on, on many different topics. And it, it was then interesting to see him then becoming the president. I think, you know, that you have someone who is, is very approachable that you can talk to. And I think that is also a similarity to Sir Philip. It's also someone that when you're with him and you, you speak, then you feel that there's a really good conversation happening and they know their topics. I think for, for me, when, when I was looking at the race to the presidency, I was never sure how it's going to feel like because the president I knew was Sir Philip and he was uh, a basketball player, that he is a Paralympian. And when you took him somewhere to a meeting, he was always this massive symbol of the movement. And I think that's an area where Andrew uh, had to work very hard to also convince people like me that this is also possible for, for the movement. But I think it was actually Philip saying, listen, it doesn't matter whether you have a disability or not, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're black or white or whatever, you need to be the right person and you need to be the right person for the job. And obviously the membership now re-elected Andrew and therefore I would say that that assessment probably still stands. So wait, when, if... If Sir Philip was ever angry, would you know he'd go, that's Sir Philip to you? Or did you, I mean. <laughs> well, no, you can say if, if I was angry, then I would say Sir Philip and he, he probably knew that I'm angry. But no, I, he, Philip always used to be Phil to everyone and always very approachable. And then um, Jocelyn, his wife, that when, when he was knighted at some point in time, she was okay, you know, at, uh, cannot be Sir Phil. So, you know, uh, it's Sir Philip. And I think she promoted this. And I think inside the organization, we also started then to go more with Philip than with Phil. And when it had to become a little bit more formal and respectful, then obviously you would also say Sir Philip or refer to him as Sir Philip. But I think if I would speak to him tomorrow and I would continuously say during the call, um, 
Sifidip, what do you think about this? Or Sifidip, what do you think about that? I think I would put myself into a very difficult position and, and very much in trouble. Have you gotten one of the famous Andrew Parsons hugs? Whether I get one of the famous... Because he's always talking about the fact that he wants to hug people. Not high five, not fist bump. I think I probably hugged Andrew many times as I hugged other people many times. And I think, I mean, Corona may, may have changed this a little bit, but when you go around the world organizing the games, you clearly see a difference between, let's say, Japan, Brazil, Italy, Great Britain. And there's certainly a tendency in certain countries with hugging people more often than in other countries. But again, I think it's great that when you're in such a position and you stay true to yourself and you still have the ability to stay approachable and you are in a, in a way also, I mean, when you ask someone, you open yourself up and you're able to do this. I think that is something positive and you just have to deal with the cultural sensitivities around it and, and respect that, uh, that in some countries, the reaction may be more positive than in other countries, but I'm, I'm sure he's well aware of that and consequently also sometimes selective about the hugging approach. I think that's a warning to us, Alison. I have no personal boundaries. But you, you've listened to us. No comment, no comment yeah, you've listened to us, Alexis. You know I have no personal boundaries, so this is not a surprise. You're going to watch Paris 2024 from being outside the organization. What do you look forward to seeing? Or, okay, as I'm fond of making long answers longer, what of your work will we see at Paris 2024? And what do you look forward to seeing there? The integration of the sponsor program into the top program. So it's going to be first summer games where all the top partners have global rights to the Paralympics. So it wasn't only my work. I mean, there's a fantastic partnership service team at the IPC and that are supporting also the, the IOC, but certainly something that I influenced heavily with my position in my, in my work. And I'm sure that Niall, who's leading the partnership team, the work that is going to be done there is going to be phenomenal because we're going to see more global communication around the Paralympic Games coming from the partners than ever before. And I think in terms of what this is going to do to change awareness and perception is something that is going to be hard to predict, but I would think it is going to be absolutely massive. It's going to be second time that Channel 4 is broadcasting games in Europe. So it's going to be games almost like in London for them. And they have surprised the world with their creativity, with their approach towards the Paralympic Games. And I think with the increased interest and sponsorship, it will give them also, because they're also a commercial, a non-for-profit, but still a commercial broadcaster. And I think give them opportunities that they didn't have since London to also work with partners to bring the Paralympics to audiences and with their creativity, probably like also before impact the work of other broadcasters and really act here as a, a leader of the pack. And I think it's going to be great to see how they will hopefully interact with NBC and Comcast and the, the folks from LA 2028 to see how that may then also 
have a, a ripple on effect then on the, on the domestic coverage in LA. And yeah, I mean, those are the two things that kind of like jump immediately to my attention when, when I think about what's still left there, but I think two very important pieces. Do you have to buy tickets like everybody else now? I don't know why that popped in my head, but it did. I guess so. I don't know. I, I didn't reach out to the IPC to ask for tickets or a way to get, so I haven't, I haven't planned out my summer of 2024. Yes, it's a bit unfortunate because if I remember correctly, I looked at it and it looked like that my daughter still in, is again in school around the Paralympics. So um, that is not going to work. But yeah, the, the answer is probably yes. But I hope that I still know a couple of people that, that can help me out. But I must say what I'm really looking forward to, and in a way, I'm not really sure whether I want I would like to see it out of the stadium or more from the screen. I've never, never really seen Paralympic Games, summer games on television because I was always there. So uh, in that sense, that's something interesting. And, and the ceremonies nowadays are so, so made for television. And it's going to be interesting to see how the approach that the Paris team is taking there. And I think it's, it's great how they approach the Paralympics there, the significance that they're giving to the Paralympic Games and, and also how they are with the ceremonies approach. I think that's, that's going to be so, in, so exciting to see. And uh, maybe it would be nice to have this Hermione Granger thing where uh, you actually can move yourself between two different places at the same time so that maybe you can watch it on television and watch it in the stadium at the same time it would be so great. But yeah, so uh, in that sense, it would be fantastic to be there, but because I've never really done this and it was so much part of also my role, it's probably something that I'm looking forward to, to also watch some things on, on television and enjoy not being in the heat of the moment, but just look at this from an interested and excited observer point of view. Well, I hope that you will not join our ranks of listeners who have what we call feed beefs over stuff that doesn't get covered. And I can see you going at home. I know why this sport is not on, but boy, do I want it on. So hopefully yeah, that will not too. happen. No, I, I, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, again, check the press release, but I think there was one. And I mean, as far as I know, there is going to be coverage. And I think that's also a great thing. I mean, to be to be honest, certain sports, you, you will have coverage, but you will never have everything. I mean, like table tennis, for example, there are so mm -hmm. many tables. I mean, there is no, there's simply no way. Tennis. I mean, yes, we do now have two courts, I think. It was in Tokyo for tennis, but there are so many more. So there will always be that match that you're going to lose. But I think in, in Tokyo, the big, big thing was to start broadcasting the outdoor sports because those are the most, most expensive ones that you have. And for the other sports, it's also trying to find a lot of synergies in the competition schedule so that you can be creative and really maximizing out your production resources. but it's simply easier than to say, okay, let's think about fencing or let's think about powerlifting, for example, and see how we can do this. It's a way smaller setup. On the other hand, I really also hope that fencing isn't working and thinking about their setup because, I mean, it's already hard as a spectator, but it's also in, in terms of your sport to follow fencing is not easy. And hopefully if they get the coverage, it will also help them to think about how they can work with OBS and others to, to think about really to set the stage for the sport and that you can see actually what makes fencing so amazing. Excellent. 
Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you for spending so much time with us, clearing up a lot of questions we have about what goes on, especially with broadcast and what we see versus what you're working on. So we really appreciate that. Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Alexis. You can follow Alexis on LinkedIn, and he is on Twitter at Alexis on Sport, and we will have links to those in the show notes. Ah, that sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at the Seoul 1988 Games as it is the 35th anniversary of that event. My turn for a story. And since we were talking Paralympics earlier, I thought I'd do a little overview of the Paralympic Games. So Seoul won the right to host 1988 because they weren't the same hosts at the time necessarily. But the other bidder for them was Australia and Australia failed to follow up on their initial interest. So it was, here you go, Seoul, you filled out the questionnaire, games are yours. These games were coming off pretty much of a disaster of a games in 1984 because the U.S. was supposed to host. They did not get enough money. So those games were split between New York and Stoke Mandeville. And they were just kind of very lackluster event, not many spectators, not much, probably not much effort to put into them, I would say. The Seoul organizers and the IPC learned that from that, apparently, because the Seoul Paralympics is widely regarded as the first games of the modern Paralympic era. And with the Seoul Games, once again, you had the Olympic host city was also the Paralympic host city that hadn't been done since Tokyo 1964. This time, however, the IPC had its first deal with the International Olympic Committee, and for the first time, Seoul shared venues between the two games. Which seems so obvious, and yet wasn't. Right. One of the things they did not share was the village, because Seoul built a village that was fully accessible for its Paralympians. And that was an interesting deal because even though they shared venues, but the two organizing committees still didn't work very closely together especially the way they do today. So these games took place about two weeks after the Olympics closed, opened on October 15th and went through the 24th. And Seoul also has the distinction of having the first Paralympic torch relay. Mm -hmm. Just over 3,000 athletes from 60 countries participated. First time participant, the Soviet Union. Oh, I would have thought they would have been there from the beginning. One would think. Program had 18 sports on it. Most sports that we would recognize, swimming, athletics, archery, that kind of thing. Judo was the new sport for these games. And a demonstration sport was wheelchair tennis. Sports on the program that we don't see anymore, football seven aside, because now it's football five aside. Also lawn bowls and snooker. Well, we saw snooker in the world games, didn't we? That's correct. There were a total of 2,203 medals across 773 events. And this is really kind of sad because there were a lot of problems with events being canceled due to lack of participation. So they didn't have enough athletes for the event or they had a lot of athletes withdraw due to classification issues. Still a problem. So that killed 156 events. And for most of them, the athletes were already in South Korea when they got the news that they weren't going to compete. Oh, that hurts. Because you know, a lot of these people paid their own way. It, it wasn't like there was any money in the Paralympics at the time. I mean, there's not a ton now, 
But then there really was nothing from the the national organizing committees. Right. So that said, the level of athleticism is greatly increased here because organizers were able to use elite athletic standards. And that meant the, the level of competition was rising and the games were getting even more credibility as they were growing. So as we heard from Alexa Schaefer, Seoul created a new logo for the games. This was designed by Sung Nakhun, and it consisted of five taeguks, which are, they look like five commas turned on a 90 degree angle so that the big curve is on the bottom, and it makes it look like a wave. Well, these five taeguks were aligned, three on the top, two on the bottom, coincidentally in the same colors and orders as the Olympic ranks. Oh, no. Did the IPC get rule 40 Eventually. These were waves. That was a symbol. It was a wave, and they were supposed to symbolize the five oceans and five continents of the world. And when they put them together in that formation, it looked like a W, which signified world to highlight the way sports brings the world together. So the IOC didn't really notice anything about the logo until 1990 when the British Olympic Association said, hey, that looks a lot like the Olympic rings. And then the IOC got involved and we heard from Alexis what happened after that. Mascots for these games were the Gomduri. These are two teddy bears. And in posters and things, they are depicted with their legs tied together in a three-legged race. And one's holding a baton. So they're in a race and they symbolize overcoming adversity through cooperation. And they're supposed to encourage people to work together peacefully and harmoniously, which I think is a lot to put onto a mascot. Especially two teddy bears. Right? They have little shoulders to hold that all up. <laughs> Mascots were also on the medals. They were on the back side of the medals. And that side also said 88 Seoul Korea in Braille. And then the front side went a totally different direction than past Paralympic medals. In the past, the medals had the logo of the International Stoke Mandeville Wheelchair Sports Federation. And this time they had the Seoul 88 logo, they had the stadium, and then they had a straight laurel branch vertically down the left side of the medal. So we are now getting into a different era of how we think of medals as well. 46 countries won medals. The U.S. topped the medal standings for each color of the medal with a total of 269. West Germany was second. Great Britain was third. 551 athletes won more than one medal. With American swimmer Tricia Zorn winning the most, she got 10 golds in individual swimming events and two relay golds. Seoul was her third games. She'd go on to compete in a total of seven Paralympics and become perhaps the most decorated Paralympian in history. These games were also revolutionary in the way that they were given the same gravitas as the Olympics. So you had a big, spectacular opening ceremony. 75,000 people were in the stadium. The closing ceremony had a capacity crowd. Just the idea that you know, you're walking in as an athlete to the opening ceremony and you've got this noise that you are not used to hearing and it's totally amazing and phenomenal. And that just puts a good tone for the experience. And the government also made sure all the stadiums were full. So they got church groups, they got school groups out. 
The other really nice thing was that they were all given particular countries to support. Uh, isn't that sweet? Well, that's what we saw in Tokyo, too. Remember when, because there were no fans, they had the school groups come out and they were the only ones in the stands and how sweet that was to have these groups coming together with the children. You know, that was all children. But this sounds like it was was a mix. So they sort of adopted various countries, it sounds like. Yeah. And that's which I, I love that idea, because if you're especially if you're from a country that doesn't have a lot of fans coming, but you have a built in cheering section. How cool is that? This led to 20,000 people attending the women's basketball wheelchair basketball finals, which is just incredible, incredible. National media covered the events. And for the first time, that gave the feeling that the Paralympics were really as appealing as the Olympic Games. According to the National Paralympic Heritage Trust, the Games cost $28.6 million dollars. They succeeded in making a profit of $1.3 million, which was used to start a sports association for the disabled within South Korea. That's one legacy of these games. The other is that they greatly increased disability awareness in the country, and they showed how sports could help integrate disabled people into society. And Jung Chin Wan, the president of the Korean Paralympic Committee, noted that before the Games, there were about 90,000 people in the country that registered as having a disability, like with the census. That's 0.22% of their total population. After the Games, that number increased by 550%. So people were denying that they had a disability, and then that's monumental. Right. And that kind of increase helped put forward more legislation around better accessibility in the country. So that's a little bit about the Seoul Games. These games have some memorable moments, including a team expulsion that we will get to in upcoming shows. Welcome to Shukflistan. It is the time of the show where we travel to our very own country of Shuklastan to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show and also listeners of the show. You are all Shuklastanis to us as well. What is going on? So beach volleyball player Kelly Chang finished fifth at the Doha Elite 16. Kim Rohde won gold at USA Shooting's Shotgun Spring Selection Match 2023. Maggie Shea and Stephanie Robel finished third at the Lanzarote International Regatta in the Canary Islands. Annika Malasinski competed in Nordic Combined in Schoach, Germany, and she finished in 22nd place. She then competed in a Continental Cup competition in Reina, Norway with three races. She got two podium finish, one second, which was a personal best, and one third, and then she placed fourth in the other race of the event. John Schuster and Team Schuster won the Men's U.S. Curling Championships. This is John's eighth national title, and they will be the American entry at the WCF World Champs in April. Racewalker Evan Dunphy finished third in the Australian Open 20-kilometer racewalking championships with his best time since 2016. Kayaker Luca Jones placed fourth in the 2023 Penrith Open. As part of that race, she was also in the K-1 Women's Masters category in which she came in first. She will be competing in the 2023 Australian Open this weekend. 
Deanna Price became the first woman ever to throw 26 meters in the weight throw, which is kind of like the hammer throw for indoor competition, when she did it twice at the USATF Indoor Championships. And speed skater Aaron Jackson, along with Kimmy Getz and Mackenzie Brown, won gold in the team sprint event at the ISU Speed Skating World Cup. Competing. We have shooters Tim Sherry and Jenny Thrasher will be competing this week at the ISF's World Cup in Cairo, Egypt. And in some other news, back to Annika Malasinski. She was named to the U.S. team going to the world champs. Shot diva Michelle Carter was named to the U.S. Black Chambers 2023 Women of Power Power 50. Keegan Randall recently spoke at the TEDx Anchorage 2023, the theme of which was entropy. Jackie Simino, our artistic swimmer, was selected as one of the 25 IOC Young Leaders. As part of this, she will get seed funding from the IOC to design and run her own sustainable sport-based social project. And Book Club Claire was selected in the Paris 2024 ticket lottery. I'm excited for her. Very excited because she got a really cool pack of tickets. Listener Nick also was involved in that. He and a bunch of friends have pooled, so they've got a whole bunch of tickets. So let us know if you've gotten selected and what you're taking home. Yes, and listener Nick is also going to a nice bunch of events as well. I keep seeing people in the Paris 2024 planning group just, I won the lottery, I won the lottery, I got in, I got in, I got my tickets. See it on Reddit as well. And like, there's nothing, no... We have not yet heard about accreditation. We have not yet heard about the lottery. And so we're sitting here hoping. And I have to say, I keep commenting on people's posts as they're panicking. Ken Hanscom told me not to panic. Yes. So Ken Hanscom is telling you not to panic. So don't worry if you didn't win the lottery. There will be plenty more chances. Well, and, you know, we can even just show up. They will let us into Paris. They may not let us into the venue. They might not let me into Paris. (laughs) Ah, Beijing 2022, we can't quit you. Not yet. And it's weird because I, I went through a whole, like, January, couldn't stop obsessively thinking about Beijing. And kind of once the the one-year anniversary stuff, that obsession just kind of faded away. But yet we still have news. We do still have news. So Camilla Valieva update. WADA has formally appealed the findings of RUSADA, the Russian anti-doping agency. So WADA is seeking a four-year ban for Valieva and an invalidation of her results beginning with the Russian nationals in December 25th, 2021, So that would also invalidate the Russian team gold medal from Beijing 2022. Now it goes to the court for arbitration of sport. But that's not all. The International Skating Union has also filed an appeal with CAS in support of WADA, saying that age cannot be used as an excuse for an athlete not to take responsibility in a doping case because Rusada's findings said she was too young to know what she was doing. So she can't be blamed and her results can't be taken away from her. Well, and if you're old enough to compete on the global stage, you should have some responsibility. It's not like she was five. Let's just say that. She was old enough. So now we wait for casts on both fronts and 
We hope that eventually the team medalists will get some medals. The Court for Arbitration of Sport has not yet announced if they are even going to accept this appeal and review the case. So two more hurdles, really, before we know this is totally, well, the first hurdle being, will they accept the case? If they don't, game over, Team Russia won gold and they will get their medals, they will have a medal ceremony. If Cass does take the appeal, then the last step is this decision. So maybe this year we'll have a decision. Well, I'm thinking we can have a medal ceremony for them in Milan. That's still a long, three years away. I know. I know what I'm saying. Well, you know, hey, didn't on a crummy note, but that's going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think of marketing the Paralympics and what what should they do going forward. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about the week's episodes. You can sign up at flamealivepod.com. Next week, we are talking with Jeff. That's what I thought I was looking at. Next week, we are talking with Jeff Whiteman. You may know him as a coach. You may know him as an announcer. He coaches his son, Jake, in the 1500 meter, and he also announces at many athletics events in stadium. You might remember him from the World Athletics Championships that was in Oregon last year where he announced his son while he won the 1500 meter, which was a spectacular event. So we talk with him about race strategy and announcing, and it's a ton of fun to hear his stories. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.